Well, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4. And please get a Bible from one of the fellows who make their way down the aisle if you need one. We want everybody to have one. That's our gift to you, by the way, marked at Ephesians 4. So just open it up at where the marker is. You'll be able to follow along as we look at God's Word together. In our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. We've been going for several months now through the book of Ephesians and looking at that theme, that each of us who have come to God through Jesus Christ has a place in the eternal plan of Almighty God. And the Bible in general and the book of Ephesians in particular teach that God is recreating people. People who in the past were identified outwardly by how they talked and by what they did. Those outward characteristics were consistent with the inward character with which we all come into this world. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are all about then what God has done to change us from the inside. And now chapters 4 through 6 are telling us that we must live in a manner that's consistent with our new life. And so chapter 4 and verse 1 says we're to live worthy of the calling that we've received. And verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 tell us that those who are living worthy or living consistent with their calling are going to be people who are unified, reflecting the unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We are to be a unified people because God is unified. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4, we're taught that we're to be holy because God is holy. Verse 22 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 24 says that this new self is to be created, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the question that we've been exploring now for a few weeks is, what does that look like? What does one who is manifesting this new character now because of an inward change, what does that person look like, this new self? And verse 25 begins the answer to that question. And that's why it says in verse 25, first where it says, therefore, because God has given you new life, because of that, each of you must, and then that's followed by six things that we are to have that identify us with this new life that's been given us in Jesus Christ. Those six things go from verse 25 of chapter 4 through chapter 5 and verse 4. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first three of those six. And they're in the outline that was inserted in your program, if you'll take a look at that. And it's the same outline that you've had for the last two weeks, because we've look, been looking at the first three of the six, and we've covered the last two weeks, the first two. Today we'll cover the third, and then in the coming weeks we'll cover four through numbers four through six. Now at the top of your outline... 
I introduced this a few weeks ago by saying these six things that identify this new character that we have in our new selves that God has instilled within us. That these things have all of have these three items in common. That living in this different, set apart, holy way has these three characteristics to it. We have it filled in for you at the top. Holy living is relational. That is, it does not take place in a vacuum. It does not take place in a lone ranger fashion. Holy, holy living takes place in community with other people. It's designed to be relational. Our God is relational. And has had relationship for all eternity between God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Has made us to be relational and we live out His character in relationship with other people. Holy living is relational. But it's also positive. And by that I've explained that I don't mean it's good versus bad. I mean it's what we're to do as opposed to what we're to avoid. Most people think of holy living as things you don't do and you've got a list of things you can't engage in. As much as you might like to, you can't do these things. But holy living is actually positive. It is what it is we are trying to achieve. And in these six items... We're told not only to avoid certain things, but instead of those things that we avoid now, to actually do particular things. We'll see another of those today. Holy living is relational and it is positive. And then thirdly, it's reasonable. God not only tells us what it is we're to put off, refrain from doing, and what we're to put on, begin doing, but then he gives us a reason for doing that. And each of these six items has either explicitly stated or implied the reason that God gives us this command. We said in the last two weeks that this new you then, beginning in verse 25, wears truth. You all see that in your outline. And last week we saw that from verses 26 and 27, the new you puts on, wears peace. Today we're going to see the third of these six items. And I'll tell you what to fill in the blank later so that you all pay attention between now and in the end. This third one has all three, in verse 28, has all three of these elements as well, relational and positive and reasonable as well. Notice verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. It's relational because it relates to, it tells us how to use our goods, that which we're blessed with, in the lives of of other people. It's positive because it tells us work. And it's reasonable because indeed it gives us the reason for this work, so that you will have something to give to those that are in need. Verse 28 is about how and why we acquire possessions. And like all Christian conduct, it has to be consistent with our identity in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see in verse 28 the wrong way to acquire possessions, the right way to acquire possessions, and then the reason for which we acquire possessions at all. So first, let's consider the wrong way to acquire possessions. Verse 28 says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. Now, as when we looked at the issue of lying back in verse 25, two weeks ago, 
you may not think that this prohibition against stealing is something you need to be reminded of. After all, none of us here are thieves, right? Hey, let me ask you. And I don't need a show of hands, but just answer this in your heart before the Lord. Have you ever taken supplies at work? There was a paper given at an American Psychological Association symposium on employee theft, and it presented a breakdown of the $8 billion that inventory, sh inventory shortages cost department and chain stores every year, $8 billion of missing stuff. Of those losses, 10% were due to clerical error, 30% were due to shoplifting, and 60% to theft by employees. That's $16 million a day. Have you ever taken supplies from work? Or how about using your employer's time for things other than what you were hired for? Your boss is paying you to perform a task, and if you're not doing it, you're stealing his or her money. Or how about padding the expense report? Now, if you have a job that you have to report expenses monthly, you know, you might want to or be tempted to fudge on those sometimes. And so does this issue of not stealing apply to us? We're going to look at a number of other ways that stealing is done beyond just physically grabbing something that is not yours and then running before the police go. Now, we don't like to call these things stealing because that sounds so, you know, sinful. And our cultures mastered the art of euphemism and evasion. We're able to use words to make unpleasant things sound better and avoid the full effect of our actions. Some years ago, I heard about a GM employee who was dismissed from his job for unprofessional conduct. The official offense, quote, misappropriation of company property. The Bible's word for that is stealing. The guy didn't misappropriate company property. The scoundrel stole. And so the Bible is very straightforward about these things. It calls it stealing, but we then have to define stealing in the ways that the Bible would define it. Now, you know that the Eighth Commandment prohibits stealing. And it says simply and directly, you shall not steal. And this command now in Ephesians 4 is based on that foundational one, from 1600 years earlier. When the Bible prohibits stealing, it's assuming the right to own private property. So in just a moment, we're going to look at various ways in which we steal. But before we do, understand that the Bible can only prohibit stealing if it first sanctions the ownership of private property. Now, I'm not going to wax too political here, but if the government if everything belonged to the government, there would be no such thing as stealing. I can only be stolen, stolen from if I actually own what's taken. If it's a crime to take that which belongs to someone else, then that other person has a legitimate right of ownership. And this was a creation ordinance when God established this world and gave man dominion over it. And so just as an example of the way people get this thinking wrong. 
Most of you know that churches are exempt from most taxes. And so when our church acquires uh, a building and we start meeting in it, that piece of property will be exempt from property taxes. We own a piece of property now on which we pay taxes because we're not meeting there right now. But when we meet in a building owned by the church, it will be exempt from property tax. But sometimes you'll hear that tax exemption for church is phrased in a way that suggests the government is giving the church something. But hear this. Simply not taking what doesn't belong to you is not giving you anything. And yet, many of us have been lulled into thinking that we're being given something simply by not having it taken from you. Now, the government does indeed have the power to tax, as we're going to see. But non-taxation is not a gift. It can only be a gift if it's yours to begin with. And our Constitution recognizes the right of ownership when in both the 5th and the 14th Amendments, it states no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so in prohibiting stealing, the Bible is preserving private property. And so we're commanded to avoid stealing. We're commanded to avoid both direct theft and then what I'm going to identify as indirect theft. Direct theft. We're not to take something that doesn't belong to us. So breaking into a house or place or, or a place of business, breaking into a car, stealing from something from a store shelf, these are all things that we would all readily agree are, are stealing. Walking out of a store without paying for something, the salesperson didn't see it, doesn't justify it. Taking too much change from the cashier. For all of you Napsters, is there still Napster out there? I don't know. It's not? Okay. So how do you steal your music now, Matt? You have Matt, Matt says he does other ways of stealing his music now. There used to be a thing called Napster where you could steal music or other internet music downloaders or copyright violation. All of those are theft. Using software illegally is theft. And the high prices on such items don't justify it. Now, most of us, I think, recognize these as stealing, and we probably don't engage in them. Or if we do, we know we shouldn't, and I trust we will cease. And if, if this is all there is to stealing, then the command, perhaps, is not one that you and I need to be reminded of after all. But we not only need to avoid Direct theft, but what I'll call now indirect stealing. Let me give you five ways that we can steal indirectly. One of them is non-work. Now, Jesus said that the worker deserves his, his wages. So if someone works for you, if you're a business owner, they're worthy to be paid in accordance with their work. But the opposite is certainly true. If you're getting paid to work, then your work should be done. And a job not well done is theft. To work seven hours of an eight-hour shift is theft. To cheat your employer of work is stealing. And the amount that you're getting paid is irrelevant because that's what we'll say, isn't it? Well, if they pay me more, 
I'd work more. Once you agree to work for a certain wage, you're to carry out your job at that wage. So we've been treated in the last several months to local newscasts, investigative reports in our neighboring city of Trenton. You know, at a Chrysler plant with guys who are getting paid to do stuff, who are getting drunk on their lunch hour, within a mile of the plant, and this after, other guys were caught months earlier at another plant. And the union and everybody said, we're going to straighten all this up. That's not surprising to me. Human nature being what it is. What's surprising to me are the people who get on the talk radio shows and say, well, why don't they go after the fat cats and try to justify this? Friends, there is no way to justify stealing from your employer and failure to work for that for which you're being paid is theft, even in a union town. Here's a second way. Tax evasion. Saw a bumper sticker that said, don't steal because the government hates competition. And so we sometimes think, you know, the grubby government has taken all of this, and so if I don't give them the full amount, then it's only right. And people cheat on their income taxes and fudge the numbers just a bit, or evade taxes by dishonest means, and doing all of that is theft. We can oppose high tax rates, but we cannot decline to pay them. There are legitimate avenues of lowering your tax liability and your tax payment. And a Christian can and probably should use every one of those available to him or her so long as it can be done honestly. But the Bible says this. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Notice that's Romans 13 written to Christians then in the city of Rome, and the one who was on the throne in Rome at the time that was written is the Emperor Nero. So if you didn't vote for our current president, or you, don't, you did but you don't approve of our current president and how he's handling his job, believe it or not, it could be a whole lot worse. And it was a whole lot worse in Rome. And yet, under that wicked Roman government, those Roman Christians are told, if you owe taxes, you pay taxes. And to fail to do so is stealing. You remember that Caesar was on the throne when Jesus walked the earth. And there were many who wanted Jesus to come as a conquering king then and destroy the Roman government and set up his kingdom right then. And so his first followers asked, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was actually his detractors who first asked him. And he saw through their duplicity. He said to them, show me a denarius. And then he looked at it and said, whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's. No matter how you try to justify it, friend, through conservative political lenses, through Tea Party, whatever you're trying to do, you cannot justify 
cheating on your taxes because you don't approve of the government. Third, there's dishonest business practice. And the Bible has a good bit to say about this. Back in biblical times, in an agrarian society, very often people were going to an open market and they were buying goods. You know, you get a little bit of that feel if you go to the eastern market or some of the farmer's markets around. And they would have to weigh them. And the Bible has a lot to say about honest and dishonest weights and measures. It would be a way of cheating someone by making them think that they were getting more than they were actually paying for. And so the Bible says things like, The Lord detests differing weights, and dishonest scales do not please Him. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are His delight. And so failing to deliver on what you promised is stealing. If you're a contractor and you say, I'm going to do X for this amount of money, then that's what you do. Using an unjust weight was a problem, as I say, in biblical times. and People would use it to weigh out a portion of something. And on the one side of the scales, they'd put the wheat or the grain or whatever was being bought. On the other side, they would put a weight measured at a certain measure so that the person could see how much they were getting. But that weight might be hollowed out inside. So that might say one pound, but it's really half a pound or three-quarters of a pound. It's stealing. There's a story about two neighbors, a banker, or excuse me, a baker and a farmer. The baker began to be suspicious of the farmer, suspecting he wasn't getting his money's worth when he paid for a pound of butter. And he weighed the farmer's butter on several occasions. He finally had him arrested for fraud. The judge asked the farmer at the trial, I presume you have scales? Yes, of course, Your Honor. And, and weights? No, replied the farmer, I don't have a set of weights. Then how do you hope to weigh accurately the butter you sell to your neighbor? He said, that's easy. When the baker began to buy from me, I decided to buy my bread from him. I've been using his one-pound loaves to balance my scales. If the weight of the butter is wrong, he has only himself to blame. Failing to fulfill a business agreement is stealing. When you agree to do something, to do less is theft. Taking advantage of people in business is stealing. Overcharging is stealing. Failure to pay back money that's been borrowed is stealing. And here's why. Because it gives you property or services for which you did not pay. Which, in fact, someone else has to pay for. And today, people are in incredible amounts of debt. And one of the solutions today is to file for bankruptcy. Now, bankruptcy is given in our culture as a society as a legal means to avoid in the old days what would have been debtor's prison. Anybody ever heard of that? You'd go to prison for failing to pay back what you agreed to pay back. So it is a legal remedy that can be worked out with a creditor and through the courts. And all in all, it's probably a good thing that we have some such system. But Christians should never take the very casual attitude toward an, 
toward a contractual agreement to pay money back that says, if I can't pay it back, I'll just declare bankruptcy. And yet that's the kind of attitude many have in our society today. Dishonest business practices. Here's a fourth indirect way of stealing, and that's destruction of property. Vandalism is destroying someone's property. In so doing, you've deprived the owner of the legitimate use of their own private property. And in such a case, restitution is owed. It's usually theft that springs out of some kind of personal animus, trying to settle a score, anger, jealousy. You say, well, I've never done that. Well, you know, have you ever keyed a car? Or thought about it? Or what about renting a place? You're renting a place. You get into a dispute with a landlord. You didn't like how much they were charging you anyway. And when you asked them to fix the stuff, they didn't fix the stuff. And so when you left it, you made sure you left it in a mess. Destruction of property is stealing from somebody else. Fifth and lastly, non-giving. And I want to be careful as I explain this because it can be easily misunderstood. So please listen carefully as I explain carefully. We are not allowed to fail to give back to God what is due to Him. Now, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, there was a whole legal system with regard to giving that God's people were to do. And there was something called tithing. And tithing was really like a tax. You had to pay it. Now, a tithe was a tenth, 10%. But there were actually more than one tithe. And by the time you figure them all up, it actually came out annually to about 23 and a third percent that you were legally required to, to give under the tithing system of the Old Testament law. But it was a legal obligation to be given. So important that the prophet Malachi asked, Will a man rob God, speaking for God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing in the New Testament, there is no legal taxation like the tithing system. So you don't ever hear me speak of, when we pass the hat, give your tithes. I don't use that terminology. It's not New Testament terminology. New Testament church terminology. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. We are to, to give willingly and not under compulsion, the New Testament teaches. And I don't know who gives what at our church. It's one of those standards that we have. I do not look at the giving records of our church on purpose. And even if I wanted to, our finance guys wouldn't let me because we've agreed that I'm not going to look at the individual giving of people in our church. I never have and I never will. So I only know two things about the giving of uh, our church. I know we don't have any independently wealthy people. And secondly, we wouldn't be able to minister effectively unless many gave sacrificially as so many of you do now some of you are new in your walk with the Lord and you have no idea what giving to God's work entails and you haven't heard much from me about it because I don't talk about it unless it comes up in a passage and by the way is this passage about having to give in 
And so it's about your material possessions and what you do with them. And so the reason that I'm commenting on this is because it's what the passage is about, and that's the only time that I comment on. Now, I just want to say this, and I'll move, I'll continue. But even as infrequently as I talk about money in the almost 10 years that we've been at our church, it never ceases to amaze me. How if you mention money one time, some people come away going, man, they're always talking about money. But you actually look at it. I rarely talk about money. What does that betray then? In the attitude of the person who, hearing money spoken about very infrequently, gets all nervous. When we receive our offering every Sunday, fellows come, I make some comments, and I say, Lord, bless you as you give. In the almost 10 years that we've been doing that, we've never stopped and had a time of prayer for the offering. Have you ever noticed that? Now, most churches that, that the church I grew up in, most churches that I know of, when they take the offering, they have a time to pray for the offering. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it would probably be good for us to do it. Maybe we will. But you know why we haven't? Because, you know, the other elements of the worship service, we don't pray over all, every one of those. Did you know that? And one of the things I want to make clear to this congregation, because God wants to make it clear to his people in his word, is this. Listen, it's only money. And it's God's money at that. So don't get so wigged out about it. It's not more important than the other stuff we do. It's important. It's not more important than the other stuff we do. We want to give it the gravity and the weight that Scripture does, but not more than that. It's only money. Get used to letting it go. It's not ours to begin with. And so in the New Testament, we are not under this legal system of tithing. Nevertheless, many of you have heard and shuddered at this tithe idea. <laughs> I had a guy I used to work with. He was going to uh, attending a church because his, his wife was making him. And he would tell me about it on Mondays. And uh, he, would, he would talk about the pastor shaking hands as he walked out. And he says, you know, this guy never remembers my name. But I know for sure, he doesn't care about me, but I know for sure he wants that tithe. And I said, it, it's tithe. <laughs> the poor guy can't even say it, you know, he gets choked up. And that's the way people think about pastors, you know, they're just, just after my money. That's why I say, you know what, and I'm, I'm just telling you as straight as I can tell you, I do not care one whit about your money at all. Zero, nada. I care about your relationship with God, and God cares about how much you care about money. And I'll tell you that, but I personally don't care about your money. And so if you come and you view me the way so many people view preachers because of televangelists and money grubbers and all that, and Lord knows there's plenty of them, you've come to a place that views it quite differently. This idea of the tithe comes from the first part of your Bible, giving a tenth of one's income to the Lord. And as a result, many Christians have used that as a baseline. It's not a requirement, but you'll still hear it from time to time. And so they strive to give a tenth of their income. And so it's not uncommon for households to give 
5,000 and 7,000 and 8,000 and more to the Lord and his work on an annual basis because they have tried to budget in a way that allows them to leave a significant percentage to give to God's work. The idea in the New Testament is that we're to give in proportion to our income. And so the Bible says this. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So here we see the principle that New Testament giving is to be regular and it's to be proportional. That is, in keeping with our income. And so one should target, each of us should target being able to give as liberally as possible to the Lord's work in keeping with our income. Now for many, that means getting your financial house in order, in order to be able to give. We have guys in our church who are in the financial counseling industry. They do it for a living. They offer it as a service to you in our church. And if you'd like help with that, contact, contact our office. We'll put you in contact with them. And then you can get your financial house in order so that you will have to be able to give. So there are all these wrong ways to acquire possessions. Now, there are the right ways to acquire possessions. Notice what verse 28 says. He that is stealing must steal no longer, but here's the right way. Must work doing something useful with his own hands. Now it says doing something useful with your hands. That's how work is defined. And generally speaking, in that society, with that kind of an economy, if you were going to work, you were going to be doing something menial. You'd be doing something with your hands. Today we have a lot of computer work. You might do intellectual kinds of work. And so the point here isn't hands versus head. The point is that you're expending your own individual efforts in order to acquire your material possessions. That's as opposed to many who are waiting for their ship to come in by lottery. You know, somebody said lottery is a tax for people who are bad at math. You see, the math's like all against you. But people who are bad at it are continually taxed by it because they're waiting for their ship to come in. So waiting for it to come in by lottery or by lawsuit, much energy as well as the limited resources one has for many people go into trying to gain wealth outside of work. The Bible says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now notice, will not work. It's not can't work, not unable to find a job. Job market's very tough right now, I understand that. It's someone who refuses to work. Then he, the Bible says this, shall not eat. And so one illegitimate use of your money, of the money that God's entrusted to you, is to give it to someone who will not work. You should not give your money to someone who will not work. You are an, enab an enabler just as sure as someone enables an alcoholic. You're enabling a lazy person. Now, we did a series in the book of Proverbs a year ago, last fall. 
And if you care to know more about this issue of work, I encourage you to go back and listen to the eighth message. It's online at our website. The eighth message in the Proverbs series was all about what the book of Proverbs says about, about work. But very quickly, let me remind you of just three points that I made then. That we tend to hate work in general. Most of us do, let's be honest. We hate work in general. God commends it. God says work. As a matter of fact, in the garden, he gave Adam work to do even before the entrance of sin and the growth of thorns and thistles and the difficulty of the work being multiplied. He gave Adam work to do. Work is something that God has assigned to us in creation. But we hate work in general due primarily to the fall, into sin, and the difficulty of work that goes with it. Hear this, the fall into sin did not result in we, us having to work. We had to work before that. The curse of the fall was that the work will now be all the more difficult. That's what God told Adam. And so we tend to hate work in general. But then secondly, many of us tend to hate our jobs in particular. And I made the point at that time in the series, that's because we're expecting fulfillment in what we do. And the truth of the matter is, almost all of us, if you're a pastor, you're an exception to this, but because my job is eternally fulfilling. But most of us have jobs that were not designed and never will give us fulfillment. And yet we're expecting fulfillment in what we do. And so the job I have is getting in the way, we think, of us being able to do what we would like to do in order to be fulfilled. And so all the time when we're on our jobs, we hate it. Because we're expecting it to fulfill us, it's not, and thus it's getting in the way of what we think will fulfill us. But then I gave a third thing. We hate our jobs, but here's another problem. It's loving our jobs. Hating your job is a problem because God has given work to do in order to provide sustenance and as we'll see when we close, to be able to give to those in need. But loving our job is a problem because, and this is what I said at that time, it shows that we are satisfied, friends, with far too little. If your job fulfills you, then you are satisfied with far too little from an eternal perspective. God did not design your job to be your fulfillment. God designed himself to be your fulfillment. And then your work, your active work in his mission, to be what turns your crank, satisfies you, fulfills you. So in our jobs, we hate them because we're trying to find fulfillment and don't, or we love them because they do fulfill us, and that's because we're satisfied with way too little. The Bible says, work with your own hands, and then it gives the reason. And here's the reason, then, to acquire possessions. We've seen the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is by work. And then here's, thirdly, the reason to acquire possessions. Verse 28 work that he may have something to share with those in need. We work in order to be able to meet our own needs and then have to give to others. 
The motivation for our work is not to simply amass money. The motivation for working in a career is not to fulfill our dreams. The motivation is to meet our needs and those we're responsible for and then meet the needs of others. Have you ever given any thought to working to meet the needs of other people? To organizing your life in such a way as to have what one author has called margin so that you're able now, having met your needs, to now give to others. Most people never think of that. If they, if they have any margin at all, it's going to be consumed on themselves rather than on others. But the Bible says we meet our own needs, we meet the needs of those that we're responsible for, and then we have to give for others. We, we give out of margin. Now, I'm almost done. But over the next couple of weeks, I want to spend time elaborating on what it means for each of us to live our lives in a way that we have margin in our money and margin in our time and margin in our talents to be used for other people. I made mention last week in my second hour class that our church was designed to be 10 years ago what I call a full service church. Some of you may remember that from last week. When we started our church 10 years ago, I did a series called that, Full Service. And the idea was that every person in the church is fully serving the Lord and that we are a church that offers a full range of services to the community. I want to remind you of that over the next couple of weeks. But the only way this church will continue to move toward its mission of being a full-service church is if it is populated by people who are creating margin in their lives with their money, with their time, and with their talent so that they have to give to others. We'll be doing that over the next couple of weeks together. And so the new you, back to your outline, the new you wears truth, the new you wears peace, and the new you wears generosity. Generosity. And what we've seen over these last three weeks, and we'll continue to see now in the subsequent weeks, is what I have for your take-home truth, that Christians show the difference that Christ has made. They show the difference that Christ has made in the way we speak. We speak truth. They show the difference that Christ has made in the way we act and react in our relationships and how we ha handle moments of anger. And then we show the difference that Christ has made in how we view the acquisition and the use of material possessions. Now, what does all this matter? Keep in mind that all of this, friends, like all of life, comes back to God. The Ten Commandments, one of them is the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. But at the beginning, before God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments, he reminds Moses and the people of God of this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And because of who I am now, 
This is the way you are to behave. These are the things you're to do. And these are the things that you are to avoid. If we bear his name, then we have to uphold his reputation in our dealings, friends. And if we say that we trust him, then that should be evident in how we approach the acquisition and the use of property. It's his to begin with. And he can distribute it as he sees fit. To resort to dishonesty or anything other than legitimate work to acquire our material possessions. To do any of that is to say that I do not trust God to take care of me. Do you trust God to take care of your material needs? If you recognize it's His, and you recognize that He will supply all your needs, Philippians 4.19, abundantly, not all your wants necessarily, but all your needs, then you don't have to resort to ill-gotten gain. And you will begin being not a manufacturer, but a distributor. You see, our problem with material goods is that we think we're manufacturers when in fact we were made to be distributors. I was made, you were made, to distribute what belongs to Him. I have this little quip that I use. If I take somebody out to lunch and I pay for it, the church actually has an account that they allow me to do that with. So I don't want the person to think I'm more generous than I really am, and so I say, I'm really good at spending other people's money. But wouldn't you agree it's a lot easier to spend other people's money? So ask yourself, whose is the money that you have? You see, it's another person's money. And if you recognize that it's always somebody else's, it's much easier to give it away. And so you go from a manufacturer mentality, I made this, to I was given this to be a distributor on behalf of the owner. We're going to elaborate on that in the weeks to come. Now, lastly, and then we'll pray. All of this is only true for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. He's radically transformed then our values, our priorities, and our allegiances so that we can see ourselves as distributors rather than manufacturers. Some of you are saying, that's not how I think at all. That changed, transformed thinking only begins when you come to Him, giving Him your life, recognizing that your route is not God's route. Going away other than God's way is variously called in the Bible by a number of terms, but the most frequent is sin. And sin has separated us from God, and sin must be reconciled. We must be brought into relationship with God. That's done through Jesus Christ paying the penalty for your sin and living an absolutely perfect life. He died the death you should have died. He lived the life that we should have lived. And so you realize you're a sinner. Recognize who Jesus is and what he did for you. Repent. Lord, I want to follow you. That's what that means. And then receive Jesus Christ into your life. You can do that as we bow. From your heart to God in your own words, simply acknowledge to him who you are, that he's your savior. Ask him to forgive you and commit to following him and he will begin to change you from the inside out. Let's bow together.
Father, we're thankful to you that your word addresses everything. Your word addresses directly or indirectly every issue of life that we face. Your word is extremely applicable and practical because you have left us here to live for you, to show your character in an otherwise dark world. And so you have left us with the light of your word to show us what your character is like and what it is we are to put on and to demonstrate and display to an onlooking world. Lord, we recognize that we cannot do this apart from you, apart from your Holy Spirit. We've been reminded again today at how often we fall short and the various ways in which we fall short. Forgive me, O Lord. Forgive us. But help us, Lord, to resolve, to move in a new direction, recognizing these, these matters for what they are and how they detract from your glory. But Lord, enable us by your Spirit because we cannot do it on our own. We ask you, Lord, to draw any in this room who have never come to you through Jesus Christ. We pray that right now their hearts are being turned toward Jesus and that they are asking in their own words to our holy God and their creator and savior, save me, take my life, forgive me. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us and we want to honor you with our lives. Help us to do that with what we've learned today and go with us this week as we seek to put it into action in the places you've assigned to us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.